0: In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Beautiful to see you all here. Uh, Some years ago, I heard a TED Talk that made such an impression on me that I've been thinking about it ever since. Maybe you've seen it. It's the one in which the novelist Karen Thompson Walker tells the true story of the whaling ship Essex which was out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in 1819 when it was struck by a massive sperm whale and sank. The 20 sailors on the Essex were able to climb into their three small whaling boats with very limited food and water. They were 3,000 miles off the coast of Chile, 10,000 miles from home, in other words, they were about as far from land as any human could possibly get. They knew that the closest land was the Marquesa Islands, which was about 1,200 miles away north. It would be difficult, but they could probably make it there. But the problem was that they had heard rumors of cannibals on those islands, and this terrified them. So. Instead, they chose a far more difficult journey to head south to attempt to sail 1,600 miles to the south in the hopes that trade winds would then push them another 1,400 miles west to the shores of South America. Their decision proved to be a terrible mistake. As it turned out, cannibalism on the Marquesa Islands was not widespread. In fact, by 1819, whaling vessels had established a peaceful trade with the Marquesas and the indigenous population. But those poor sailors didn't know that. Instead, they vividly imagined brown savages with sharpened teeth. They could practically hear the horrified screams of their fellow sailors and smell their flesh as it roasted on a fire. These lurid details supplied by their cultural conditioning and then set ablaze by their own fear caused them to wildly overestimate their actual risk of death by cannibalism. Dehydration and starvation was not nearly as frightening to them as cannibals, and so they chose the less frightening but far more dangerous route, sailing south instead of north. Many weeks later, they were found by a passing ship Half the crew had died, the rest had survived, in part, by resorting to the very cannibalism that they had hoped to escape. Great story! Thompson Walker tells the story to illustrate the ways in which fear turns all of us into novelists. Children lying awake at night imagining boogeymen and monsters in the closet are brilliant writers of fiction, she says. They can't stop producing all the lurid details and plot points and elements of suspense that make for riveting stories. As adults, we learn to tune out those nighttime fears most of the time, but when we're in crisis, when the nightly news is full of chaos in the streets and pandemic in the air, revolution and enemies all around, it's easy for us to give credence to the stories that scare us the most, while we ignore the threats that are actually more likely to happen. In her TED Talk, she says, Our subtlest fears may be the truest. Our subtlest fears may be the truest. We're not likely to die in a plane crash or at the hands of a serial killer, but those are the stories we find compelling and therefore believable. Meanwhile, plaque is silently building up in our arteries, and meanwhile, subtle shifts in the climate are leading to catastrophic results. And so in the bright light of this beautiful morning, we find this wonderful ghost story in the middle of Matthew's gospel. Unlike the sailors of the Essex, the disciples like the sailors of the Essex, the disciples are all on a boat, on a boat and they are terrified. They've been trying to make it across the Sea of Galilee all night long, but the wind has been against them. The waves have been battering them, and as the dawn breaks, the storm is still raging, and they look up to see a ghost coming toward them over the water. If there's one thing that scares those disciples more than drowning, it's a ghost. They're frozen with fear. This is one of the great ghost stories of the Bible. In the grip of our fear, we will actually mistake Jesus for a ghost. And then Jesus speaks, he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The same message delivered by the host of angels at his birth, the same message given to Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb, the same message given by the risen Jesus in that upper room, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Do you suppose it's possible that when Jesus said, do not be afraid, he could have meant, do not believe the stories that your fears are producing right now. It's like that bumper sticker I love, do not believe everything you think. Because, I mean, who wouldn't be struck dumb with awe, shaking with fear at the sight of a spirit, walking across the water? It would be pretty impossible not to be terrified. But that doesn't mean you have to believe the story that your fear is creating. You don't need to believe that it's a ghost out to get you. You can choose to believe the truth. Oh, it's Jesus. Oh, Jesus is here. We don't need to be afraid. Fear, of course, was one of the central concerns of the early church, especially as tensions with Rome began to escalate into another full-scale civil war and as apocalyptic visionaries traveled throughout the region telling lurid tales of the end of days, informers from within Murder from without, the righteous persecuted at the hands of the wicked, salacious rumors and dangerous stories in that tinder box that could break out like a wildfire, threatening to destroy the Jesus movement before it even found its legs. But somehow, this counter-narrative seems to have won the day. Somehow, stories of peace became more believable than stories of fear. Despite all that evidence to the contrary, the early Christian church somehow came to believe in a God who shows up in the midst of trouble, a God who calms the storm and silences the wind and saves the faint of heart and gives courage to those who doubt. That in itself is perhaps the biggest miracle of the early church that somehow they found this capacity to trust in a loving God, despite the very real existential threats to their survival. It's a testimony to the power of the gospel, first of all, and a tribute to the genius of Paul and the other early apostles, that the early church learned how to create communities that were united enough, despite their diversity, and resilient enough, despite their suffering, to withstand any of the forces that threatened to tear them apart. The biggest threat to the unity of the early church, of course, was not from without, but from within. It was the question of what to do with these pagan Greeks who were clamoring to join this Jewish movement. As more and more Greek pagans started knocking on the doors of the early church, a decision had to be made. Do we include them or send them packing? If we include them, how? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to eat kosher? Are they under the law of Torah or not? The early followers of Jesus found themselves between a rock and a hard place on these questions. On the one hand, it seemed entirely Unnecessary to require Greeks to fully convert to the Torah. In the Jewish imagination, that was kind of like, you know, trying to make a dog behave like a cat. You might be able to teach it a few tricks, but it's still a dog. It seemed to be widely understood that Greek pagans were born under a different law, and there was little reason to think they were entirely subject to the Torah. But on the other hand, Torah was central to the identity of early Jewish Christians. And so as more and more Greek pagans wanted in, there's this built-in division between them that seemed insurmountable. It was like conservative Republicans trying to get into the Democratic Convention. There seemed to be no solution to the problem until the two central sacraments of the early church were invented, baptism and communion. With baptism, a way was found to include Greek pagans and Jewish Christians into a single common identity. With baptism as the signifier of inclusion rather than circumcision, Jews and Greeks could find their common identity. And with communion, the unity of that community could be practiced week in, week out with great intention, enacted and reenacted until the dream of a world at peace could be lived out in real time. That taste of the heavenly banquet could become real. One people eating from one bread, drinking from one cup, experiencing the one Spirit of God. A world at peace could now be imagined and experienced around a shared table with Jesus at the head. This new focus on baptism and communion held these early communities together despite massive forces that threatened to tear it apart. These spiritual practices of the sacraments communicated again and again that peace was possible, that God was a God for all people, all nations, all languages, This was no longer a pipe dream, but a lived reality. With a dream like that, grounded in the living, palpable experience of Christ, there was nothing that the early church needed to fear. As Paul put it, nothing could separate them now. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. It's no coincidence, I think, that during our own civil war, the churches with the strongest traditions of the sacraments, the Catholics and the Episcopalians, those were the churches that did not permanently split. Whereas the less sacramental churches broke and splintered like dry twigs. The Baptists, the Methodists, Presbyterians all suffered nearly permanent divisions during the Civil War, while the Catholics and the Episcopalians, united by the sacraments, survived the war more or less intact. But the sacraments don't mean a thing without the animating, resurrecting spirit of God in Christ that is communicated through the sacraments. It's that spirit of Christ that is described this morning, Jesus majestically showing up in the, our hour of need, hearing us when we call out, calming the storms, silencing the wind, These sacraments do not derive their force from the shallows of human imagining. They derive their force from the powerful word and wind of the spirit itself. The sacraments are windows through which the spirit of Christ blows directly into our minds and our hearts. That is why these rituals have persevered for so long. That's why these sacraments are so effective in bringing us together. It's by the mysterious means of the living Christ becoming real to us in body and blood, literally joining our flesh and blood. It is by those means that we are transformed. And so this morning we continue this ancient tradition once again as we pray for that unity that is the fruit of his spirit. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, into our troubled hearts once again. Pour out your spirit upon your people through your holy presence. Help us always to find our unity in you and drive away all fears through the grace and power of your love. Amen.